Okay, we are live. We are live. Let me just wait for Rockfin to uh, give me the, the green light so I can go live on Rockfin. Mm. And we will begin. All right, there we go. Okay, so we are live. We have with us Alexander Mercurius, the Oracle of London in London. And we are very, very happy, very honored, very grateful to have with us the man behind I, Earl Grey, Mr. <laughs> Mike Jones. Mike, hey. it is great to have you with us. How are you? Likewise, I'm very well. To quote Boris Johnson, it's too much honor. You honor me too much, uh, Mr. President, or <laughs> Alexander, as it was. I thought that was that was quite true as well. So, no, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure and uh, mm -hmm. uh, honestly an honor to uh, join you guys. Great to have you. Let's get started. Let's say a quick hello to everyone that is watching us on Rockfin. Everyone that is watching us on Odyssey. Hello, Odyssey. Mm -hmm. How are you guys doing? Rumble. How is everyone doing? in the Rumble chat, hit that like on Odyssey, hit that like on Rockfin, smash that like on Rumble, and a good day to everyone that is watching us on YouTube as well. Hello to our moderators on YouTube. I see Alice in, God, I'm having a hard time making that out. Blunderland, is it Blunderland now, Alice? Alvalies, the great Valies, good to have you with us. And I think I saw Zariel, Alan Watson, Reckless Abandon, somewhere in the chat. I think I saw you guys somewhere in there. Great to have you with us, our moderators. And a big shout out to our fantastic locals community, the Duran.locals.com. John says, love Mike's shirt. Awesome. It's actually John Dugan's uh, gift <laughs> to me. I invaded Ukraine and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so uh, let's... Uh, Let's get started real quick, Alexander. Let's say hello to Ernest Gibson. Hello to Douglas Marshall. Dominique says, I can't believe if they are saying they are going to confront China together with Russia, apart the ominous military aspect, it would be total economic catastrophe. The West, which is broke, will finally collapse, or is it reason? If so, God help us. Thank you, Valias, for that. Thank you, Ernest Gibson. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, mm -hmm. Elza. Mike was on my wish list, says Elza. And mm. Commando Crossfire says, Rockstar Mike, amazing work you've been doing in the Donbass, delivering humanitarian goodies and bringing light to the people suffering there and their strength and resilience. You rock, Masha, too. So thank you to everyone for those super chats. So Dominique had an interesting uh, super chat, Mike and, uh, and Alexander, as does uh, Commando Crossfire. But I think um, the topic for today, the, the escalation escalator uh, mm. a term coined by by the great alexander mercurius alexander mike i pass it off to you guys mm, mm. well the, the reason i came up with it and it was basically i should say on a live stream is that this is it seems to me what the west now finds itself in because from a military point of view the situation from a Western point of view, the military situation is deteriorating in Ukraine. Now, that may come as a surprise to people in Donbass who are still being shelled. But it's now clear that the Ukrainian counteroffensives have petered out. They've hit a wall. Ukraine is losing men and machines all the time across the battlefields. Very big Russian armies are now gathering large numbers of Western equipment 
is being deployed. So what does the West do? Their attempt to break Russia economically has failed. And by the way, Mike, I want you to talk a bit about what you are experiencing in St. Petersburg there. I've been seeing some very interesting articles in Western media, which corroborate some of your earlier reports, by the way. But, you know, I'd like to discuss that with you in more detail over the course of this program. But the original plan to break the Russian economy, to crush Russia economically, to provoke protests there, um, to, you know, obliterate the financial system, to cause hyperinflation. That's not worked. Um, Alistair Crook, <laughs> Alistair Crook wrote a piece about this in which he's um, written, written how, you know, the big story of 2022 was Russian resilience. It means first and foremost, of course, Russian economic resilience, which is not anticipated. Then the Ukrainian counteroffensives of the autumn I think it's gradually coming to be accepted that they've actually weakened Ukraine, a point which Brian Belletic at the New Atlas has been making a long, a long time, that Ukraine has lost lots of men, lots of machines. So they're looking at a very, very difficult, very deteriorating situation. So what do they do? Well, they could talk peace. <laughs> and there's been a very interesting interview in the Washington Post between Blinken and David Ignatius, one of my particular bugbears, by the way, I have for all kinds of reasons. But anyway, in which they sort of floating ideas about possible peace in Ukraine. We'll come to that maybe later in the program. But they don't really want to talk about peace. And of course, the hardliners everywhere are insisting that we can't even consider peace. And the Ukrainians talk about not considering peace. So what do they do? Well, nobody, it seems to me, wants to be the leader in the West who held back from supporting Ukraine because they don't want to be the ones who, when it all falls apart, get blamed because they didn't send their tanks or their fighter jets or their missiles to support Ukraine. So the result is, they're now crossing all their red lines. Um, there's been a great article by Jeff Roberts about this in the Irish Times. There's been a really fine article by someone else, I can't remember their name, in Responsible Statescraft. The West sets its own red lines. They say, we won't send these weapons. We won't send that weapon. That's too escalatory, too dangerous. It might expand the war. But as defeat looms, the pressure to provide these weapons increases. And that is the escalator. They're escalating all the time. They're going up, providing more weapons. Now it's tanks. Already there's the demand for long-range missiles. Zelensky's talking about long-range missiles. Then it's going to be fighter jets. All the things they said they would never provide, they're on this escalator, and they don't know how to get off. And that's a very dangerous situation indeed. So that's why I stumbled into this phrase, the escalation escalator, because that's, it seems to me, where we are. They're going up this escalator. If you're up, going up an escalator, you know you can't get, or it's not easy to, to walk down if it's going up. It's very difficult to get off on either side. You're being pushed remorselessly upward. You have lost control of the situation. Now, 
there's always hope. There's always hope that, you know, 88 tanks are going to change the situation on the battlefields. There's always the hope that morale is going to crack somewhere in Donbass, in Russia, that there's going to be protests against Putin. Every so often I read about how things, you know, there's uh, unrest and worry about these things in Russia. I haven't seen any sign of that myself. But Mike, you're the man on the ground. <laughs> Tell us what you found first in Donbass and perhaps now in St. Petersburg. But shall we start with Donbass first? Because you've been there. What is your sense of the mood of people there? I mean, are they about to crack? Is there um, a feeling that, you know, this war is going wrong, um, that they're yearning for some kind of peace, a peace which, of course, from a Ukrainian point of view, would be a capitulation? No, to to my perception of the mood in Donbass, it's obviously there's a very heavy mood, very dark cloud over particularly Donetsk, uh, where they at the mm. time were suffering mm. increased shelling that has since mm. subsided, as you've rightly commented, Alexander. Uh, I think I've said in previous videos of mine that given that this has been an eight year protracted um, suffering for these people, uh, it's kind of now a push. Uh, of course, um, a lot of it's come to a head. Uh, even as we drove on the last trip to Donetsk, uh, I saw one of the anti-aircraft missiles flash upwards as it obviously engaged one of the incoming HIMARS uh, that was coming in. So it was very active at the time. The Many people have reported Eva Bartlett, among others as well, uh, about the amazing resilience of the people. I was lucky enough to speak to one of the mobilized DPR soldiers and he told me some pretty amazing stories, Part, partly as I reported this disparity in the pay between the professional and the mobilized, uh, quite uh, double, he was saying, sort of double pay for the mobilized. And there was all these problems there um, that he was describing to me, which I hope will be resolved. But the other thing he said were about some of the amazing individuals, uh, uh, a 60-year-old man who had volunteered, not been mobilized, because he said, I cannot rest at home, uh, knowing you know I have my grandchildren there and I cannot rest allowing others to do what I'm capable of doing. So that was his reasoning for being there. And that was one of a sort of catalog of similar stories. So certainly for the people of the DPR and these affected regions, there is that motivation and very much it is on their doorstep and they have to do something about it. I can't speak for, let's say the mobilized from the far regions of Russia, uh, one wouldn't expect to um, see the same level of motivation in, in those people. That would be understandable. But yeah, overall, it's uh, a case of get it done. It's quite clear that they can't achieve peace through any other means. The Minsk Accords uh, were an attempt, Merkel, as we've discussed before, or you guys have highlighted, that was all supposed to, by her claims, to have been a ruse to bring us to this very point. So there's no doubt there's no doubt about where the Europeans and NATO and the US have pushed things towards, and therefore it's a job that needs to be done. So that's Donbass. Yeah, yeah. Can, can we stick to Donbass for a moment? Because mm -hmm. I mean, one of the one of the great, I think, tragedies about this war, in, from a from 
you know, from from the where for the West, for people in the West, I mean Western governments, is of course they never talk about Donbass here. <laughs> you never ever hear anything said about Donbass. I mean, every so often an article appears about how the Russians are sell- shelling Donetsk city or something of that kind. I mean, you, you know, things that really make absolutely no sense at all. I've I've seen articles like this. And um, but Donbass and the moods and sentiments of the people who live there have never been a factor at any time that Western governments seem to acknowledge at any point in the Ukrainian crisis. I mean, going all the way back to Ukrainian independence in 1991, right the way through, you know, the Orange Revolution of, I think it was 2004, uh, through the 2014 uh, crisis, I mean, when there were protests in Donbass about what happened in Kiev in February 2014, the overthrow of the Yanukovych government, and there was protests in Donbass and a referendum and all those sort of things. Again, it was completely discounted that this was, in fact, local people <laughs> taking, you know, having any kind of agency of their own. It was always assumed that it was, you know, the Kremlin was somehow uh, um, orchestrating the whole of it, the whole thing. And since this war began, I mean, again, there's been almost no discussion of Donbass at all. And then, of course, you go to the other side, to the Russian side, not just people in Donbass, but in Russia itself. And there for them, Donbass is central <laughs> to this whole conflict. It is it is what this conflict ultimately is about. And there is this huge gap in understanding, it seems to me, in, in the West. Most people you talk to here in the West, in Britain, they've never heard of Donbass. They don't know what you're talking about when you talk about this. And they don't understand how the extent to which this has been a catalyst of the conflict conflict there. Now, asking another question, are people happy now that they're part of Russia in Donbass? Um, yeah, so to just add to your point, if you ever, the very rare mentions I've seen of this region is always Russian-backed separatists or Russian separatists. That's how they're kind of dehumanized and their whole whole saga story is just pushed under the carpet. Uh, are people happy? Um, relieved, I guess, in just the recognition of everything they've been striving for for the past eight years, because they did have a referenda before that were ignored by Kiev, uh, where similar results, in fact, you know, high 90s, uh, I believe. Uh, I was told certainly in Mariupol as well. So now finally they they have that recognition, albeit from the Russian Federation and a few others. Uh, so there's there's that sort of relief, and that is one step forward towards the society, future, and life that they wish to live, one free of persecution and you know, the, the long list of grievances that they had with Kiev. So happy, to, that's too soon, <laughs> too soon to say, uh, relief, I think, of just that yeah. little bit. And then the next step is, of course, to secure peace. Yes. Uh, How do people feel about Ukraine? I mean, is there anger towards Ukraine? I mean, what doesn't 
get the sense actually i mean it's one of the surprising things for me is that there's a lot of very vitriolic things coming out of ukraine i've never seen anything quite the same coming out of donbass but you know maybe i'm not representative here maybe maybe i'm not getting all the information that there's there's not the same ferocious no language sadness about ukraine if i were to describe it i'd say sadness and betrayal is probably mm. the the words I'd use. I'm going to reference one interview that I haven't published. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure I will. It, I went to meet a fella in Mariupol uh, who described the the time there. It was a very difficult story to listen to. He uh, was at home with his wife when uh, Mariupol was defending itself. Uh, the Azov battalion were defending against uh, the Russian forces. I think the Chechens were quite active at this area. And he described how his house was hit by an RPG. Uh, so he went outside to sort of say, hey, we, we are Ukrainian. This is what he was said to the Azov guys. And they shot him in the leg. An automatic fire. His wife ran out and dragged him. And uh, he showed me the bullet holes along the garden walls and the metal where they were aiming for her head. It was at that sort of level where she was ducking and uh, he described the obviously the damage that had happened to his house and how russia had provided all the bid, building materials and were repairing it for free but that was his key point he said i'm ukrainian <laughs> i have a ukrainian passport and this is what i was saying to these Azov guys what are you doing he's they didn't care it was just civilians that was mm -hmm. it he said i can't speak for their motivations or why whether they were all in the head on other substances or whatever he said i'd just be speculating but that's mm. what struck me so much and also my key point to him was so you are ukrainian you have a ukrainian passport and yet russia still provided you building materials have you got dual citizenship have you got a russian passport as well he said no i still have my ukrainian passport and uh, i would view myself as ukrainian but uh, as one can understand given the actions and the events he witnessed and suffered and the seeming intent that they had to not just um, hurt him but also his wife you he'd been you know alienated uh, through through these actions and alleged atrocities from that so that that's um kind of how i would how i would almost describe many people's feelings is pretty much a betrayal they they wanted to work with and then they were pushed to declaring you know, autonomous regions, and there was all this kind of negotiation. How would these autonomous regions work with Kiev? So again, not split away completely. It's not like they threw up their hands and stormed off as best one can. So you can kind of gauge the incremental way that the US, through Newland, through their policy, has in fact has pushed these people to this point and fostered these set of circumstances that we see today. And now, as you described with the escalation escalator, has just drawn everyone, including Spain now. Spain with their leopards, Sweden with their things. It's drawing everyone into this almost black hole of catastrophe. That, that describes it very well, because there's a countries that have really no real interest in this issue. I mean, why would Spain, uh, uh, frankly, be 
want to why would they see an existential threat to themselves is what's going on in a place like Bakhmut, for example <laughs> i mean which a place which nobody in spain except a very few people tiny minority of people intelligence officers probably would have heard of uh, even a year a year ago i mean you know it, it's very bizarre if you think about it this way let's just ask what's going on in Mariupol because uh, i remember watching patrick uh, lancaster's programs and you know the the place looked like you know sort of devastated just like you often see um wartime cities after you know they've been they the fighting has ended but there's been a there's been a, some talk that there's been some building work there some suggestions it's not going particularly well others saying that it's going extremely well what, what was your impression i'm blown away absolutely amazed by the new building that that is mm. going on you're absolutely right the scenery there is akin to what you saw in the history books of of wartime cities or almost like a hollywood movie set like this is surreal they're going to be filming something here because just everything it's all the destruction is almost too complete uh, in in some areas ways but and then i'd often ask uh, if there were buildings standing I wonder what the story was here, why that building is untouched, yet everything is obliterated around it. Uh, and you find yourself uh, musing uh, on all sorts, how a car can be just flipped on its head and cut in half. How does this destruction physically take place here? And, and yeah, you could spend a lifetime studying it all. So, yeah, you've got that side of Mariupol, and then in amongst it, you have these amazing new construction schools, kindergartens. We had an interview with the mayor that I believe has been published. And in that conversation, we mentioned that, that the, I had seen, I had shared some of this footage on Telegram to see comments that claimed that this was CGI and that these new buildings that Russia has achieved in three months were fake. Uh, this ceremony where they handed keys over to these families to take their new uh, apartments free of charge those these are being built for free for displaced citizens of Mariupol this was supposed to be a fake so uh, I joked with the mayor about that and uh, I said could we maybe have uh, a tour of the the apartments and he said yeah yeah be my guest anytime uh, I'll happily arrange that for you so we stopped off at one and the foreman then uh, got in touch with his boss who turned up in a Subaru Forester and escorted us to two uh, completed, nearly completed. Uh, one was completed, another one was just finishing another block. And these are big high-rise apartments, and they showed us a range from one to three-bedroom apartments there, uh, which we've I will I do intend to publish. Absolutely blown away and staggered, and that was just a, a small. Uh, portion of it, and these are as you can expect. These are private companies. He he obviously couldn't name the actual company, but he said it was from Rostov. So a government contract has obviously been put out to tender. These companies have bid for it and they've been awarded it. And in just three months, this particular company had finished three campuses, three blocks of, of these apartments, and they were excellent standard. Uh, I was really, really impressed and amazed. And again, it has mm. to be stressed. You can't buy these. They will be allocated to people who had apartments and uh, don't wish to wait for those buildings to be renovated or repaired. They they are happy to exchange that for these new ones. Right. What is the supply situation about food? Uh, you know, 
essential food, goods, medicines, that kind of thing? I mean, is it uh, are people short short of those things? Are are they supplied there? There's a situation uh, that was described to me when we delivered these. We delivered some medicines and gifts to particularly special needs children who often have many other medical complications. And the parents there told us that certain, certain drugs are not available there and it's to do with this prescription system. So it was kind of a bureaucratic loop whereby you needed a doctor's prescription, but um, if even if you got it, these drugs were only currently available in the Russian Federation. So we'd managed to get a list from these parents beforehand, gather them in Voronish across the border and bring them in. It wasn't necessarily, or maybe it is that certain medicines are in short supply and not available in Mariupol. The reason I, I kind of, I'm careful there because there's the other side with like food, isn't, it's not necessarily that the item isn't present, but the economy is kind of so broken at the moment, the lack of jobs, employment and all this, and therefore gathering money in order to afford things is therefore this challenge so that it's going to take a lot of time for all the mm. things we take for granted in normal functioning society uh, mm. i'm i touched on some of the pay differences as well the minimum wage in st petersburg i'm going to put at around twenty-five thousand rubles a month mariupol twelve thousand rubles uh, rubles a month there's a huge difference and change i mentioned st petersburg and mariupol because they have um a link now there's a cooperation. St. Petersburg has supply, uh, supplied buses. <laughs> and then that made sense why I saw on all the buses Mariupol twinned with St. Petersburg. Obviously, St. Petersburg had printed those on. And the mayor was telling me about some of the exchange programs with students um, and other funding and other initiatives that St. Petersburg administration is providing for Mariupol. But there are some very fundamental challenges that the mayor, I don't know how the mayor can, can do it with all the work that he's got to do. Uh, namely yeah economy reconstruction uh, among security as well i mean that's got to be another consideration as well so yeah there are many uh, challenges and there are some things that are missing glass what windows did the, as well all right oh gosh okay interesting what about the feeling about the direction of the war is the um frustration that you know the shelling continues in donetsk that people don't understand why did they feel this war isn't going as well as they expected or that it's taking longer than they expected do people talk about that no i didn't hear any of those points really yeah. when the shelling intensifies it's kind of my my impression is like well here we go again it's that's how desensitized in a very tragic way uh, I see these these people are. Um, they don't. It, it, I likened it to thunder going on in the background, and you do very quickly get used to it. Um, and when nice. I visited some one of the journalists who lives in the outlying areas, we visited a young girl. It was kind of like a make a wish initiative that the administration mm -hmm. had taken on. She'd been chosen, uh, and her parents had been recently killed in a shell attack on their house so we delivered some clothes and uh some items to her and there it was uh you could sense it was more da not danger close but the explosions were far more pronounced uh but at the same mm. time markets are open people are about their normal daily life right next to sh burnt out hulks of of shops 
Good grief. Tell me yeah. this, are people, I mean, do, does it, what, what is the general feeling about the progress of the war? Are people afraid about these Western tank deliveries? Does, they make, does that make them worry that, you know, things might turn out badly for them? Or do they believe that, you know, they're winning? I mean, what is, what is the general mood about this here in, in Donetsk? Uh, the news about the Western tanks is too contemporary, is too recent. The, the NATO supply of munitions, you know, most of the, certainly Donetsk wouldn't even, for the most part, be being struck if it wasn't for the supply of HIMARS. Uh, or, or the M777s as well uh, that were stationed nearby. So they're under no illusions as to who's behind this. Uh, and I think they have little option than to trust both the DPR, LPR militia with the support of the Russian Federation. Now, there really is uh, no, other, no other options left for them. As for progress, it's very difficult. They do suffer uh, losses. And, uh, you know, that's for all to see there. Uh, not the level that the West is saying where, <laughs> you know, mobile crematoriums and stuff. That's you know, that's not the scale. But of course, there is enough that p many people have suffered a loss in the family, very similar to the Great Patriotic War that touched almost every family in Russia. Hence, uh, the like George Galloway last night on his live stream was saying, opening these very deep scars and wounds in the Russian people by having panzers engage Russians is beyond ill-advised. <laughs> Put it that way. I, I, I... It's 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 going to harden feeling in Russia. It's going to it's going to be a major pop, pro, uh, you know, political. But also gift. Donbass, uh, given Hitler's well, the little mustachioed man's concentration, because in Barbarossa uh, he did put yeah. priority over this very same region, including Odessa, yes. uh, as well. Yeah. So th these memories as well, they've not been forgotten, Very, and absolutely there are many they have been reminders from the absolutely. actions of Kiev's forces. I mean, it was an extraordinarily misconceived move, move at multiple levels. But as it, we'll come to that. Tell, let's 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 talk a bit about St. Petersburg and Russia itself. I had I was reading a very very interesting report from uh, somebody. Uh, I think it was a Russian person who person of Russian background, but he was in the West. It was an American media report. He'd been to St. Petersburg, and he was shocked to find it as normal life there was as normal he was complaining about how normal the life was and we had pictures of he provided pictures of supermarkets full of goods and all those things and he, you know he, he he couldn't quite bring himself to accept that but he eventually said you know we have to accept the reality is that life in russia goes on and it goes on very much as it did before the war in other words there's been some disruptions there's been some problems but overall, the, the economy has held up remarkably well. And there's none of that sign of distress that you expected. Now, we've had programs with you earlier during the conflict. But has there anything in that respect changed? Have things got worse? Have things got better? Are they roughly where they were? What, what's going on? Better. Um, Price-wise, I mentioned, I think, to you guys about the spike in, let's say, baby products, particularly diapers. Um, pampers that sort of thing uh, so the example I think I gave was about 500 rubles for a standard generic pack of supermarket owned brand went up to about a thousand just a couple of days ago I checked that price again uh, with my wife and I when we were buying some more and it was down to about 800 so you still overall there's still a price increase but it the 
uh, stress on young families has alleviated somewhat. I've reported how uh, Russian industry announced that they had produced the first all Russian-made computer monitor. It uh, wasn't yet available for sale because it was being provided to government agencies in Voronish, actually, in fact. So the government administrations there would be provided with these um, not top of the range, 1920 by 1080 HD monitors. There we are. Good enough for government government work, as they say. So there we go. We have some, some attempts to um, reduce the need for imports or foreign-made electronics. Uh, in that regard. So actually, things are, they are improving. To give a different example, uh, the automotive industry has been one of the um, one affected. But now it's become in a very bizarre way. So we bought a Nissan. And we went to have it serviced. And something like brake pads needed changing, pretty normal stuff. But Nissan dealership itself couldn't provide the Nissan brake pads so we had to settle for compatible parts which i'm going to guess are chinese so <laughs> uh, now to the point where it's better for us to sell the nissan before the warranty or the three years are up mm. uh, before it then requires like mot's and things uh, and probably buy a haval or a chinese car because parts are plentiful for those there's no such uh, restrictions on that and yet mm. the these nissans and other brands are still desirable enough to attract still more than we paid for it brand new. So there's a, it's all kind of topsy-turvy yeah. in different industries and mm. fields. I have to say the recovery of the Russian um, car industry has surprised me, actually. I've, it's mm. happening much more quickly than I'd anticipated. And, um, you know, I've heard all kinds of explanations for why that is. I, I'm not going to go into the weeds of that because, um, especially it involves um, transfers of things from one particular country, which I don't want to name <laughs> because I don't think uh, that's particularly something people want to talk about. Not China, by the way. But no. anyway, there's there's been a, you know, definitely an uptick there. So overall, your impression, um, inflation is becoming more subdued. Good. Yeah. Skillful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So things, as I say, are still slightly elevated, but are uh, easily affordable um, to give to give another reference. I just got my electricity bill the other day for three months. It worked out uh, and this covers winter, which has been mild um, by previous year's standards about 26,000 rubles for three months um that used to be around 300 pounds maybe that's 350 so roughly uh, yeah roughly sort of around 100 pounds a month roughly or slightly I'm not, more uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm astonished. I'm not going to even make comparisons <laughs> with the situation here in Britain. Anyway. No, um, and Russians would say that's expensive. So, and I have an no, electric no. house, no gas, so, with heated floors, yeah. by the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Well, I, I, as I said, I'm not, going to, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to go into the details of that either. No. What is the mood in Russia? I mean, are people, are, are people following the war? Is this something that people talk about and discuss? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, there is still, uh, or there are still, the two camps. Um, mm. I, I was surprised. I picked up some, as I was driving from Moscow to St. Petersburg, 
I offered a friend if they needed anything picked up and uh, they said, oh, could you check in with my friend and pick up some bits? Through conversation, uh, Marsha was with me translating and she explained where we'd been, where we're going and all this. And this, this girl um, was very curious uh, because she was from the young, quite a young girl, uh, very, knew very little about Donbass. This, again, this is a Russian. And you very little about Donbass, very little about the preceding period beforehand, was of the opinion or was in the camp of Russia as the aggressor country, you know, very similar to where Masha had come from with her protesting things. And then uh, everything that we were sort of relating, not, not so much about you know educating her, but just saying about our experience there and what we'd seen was very much a surprise for her. And this was in Moscow. So there are still that part of society that's very much very similar to the West in its level of knowledge and its opinions and all this within Russia itself. Um, so there's that side. But uh, again, I do have to stress this talk of the German tanks now uh, that will yeah. that will have incensed people. I think even young people will then know that whoa, that's that's really a line to be crossed. If we think of victory days that have always been celebrated every year, the March of the Immortal Regiment, where you know they keep family members' memories alive through their pictures and march them through the streets every year, even that is uh, really, really bad <laughs> in so many ways, as is intended, I believe. Uh, and then to also add on, I've reported about these short to medium range Panzer anti-aircraft defense systems being loaded by crane on buildings in moscow i think russia is is taking this very seriously they can see what what the, the west is up to and the fact that they can't step off and that measures do need to be taken i haven't someone did ask me i haven't seen similar reports or measures being taken in st petersburg but i wouldn't be surprised if in the near future then such defenses are added Mm. I, I ought to say that um, there has actually, I did see one admission in the Western media somewhere that this supply of German tanks to Ukraine, Leopard tanks, is, well, they, they put it in this way, a, a, a gift to Putin, a political gift for Putin. They always talk about Putin. I mean, it's always focused around Putin. But at least there was some understanding on the part of this person about what an impact it would have to see German tanks operating in Russia, or at least in what the Russians consider to be Russia, again. And you, know, you can already see all the pictures and things that they're starting to appear on the Russian side of things, you know, leopards and modern Russian soldier fighting a leopard uh, with a, you know, in the background, uh, an old Red Army soldier fighting a tiger. And you could see what, you could see how this is all, playing up to all of that and it's bizarre to me that this isn't something that is a talked about at all in the west to any great extent it shows again a remarkable failure to understand this country you know russia which is the country you know which is supposed to be the one that we are engaging yeah, uh, Peter Hitchens in the Daily Mail stressing how in the debate, or rather non-debate, in the British Houses of Parliament, there were no dissenting voices to this idea of challenges going out there. Yeah. Like, really, was, not yeah. one not one person had not any one. reservations at yeah. all. Yeah. 
at all. How it, it, was an, that? it was very disconcerting, and I have to say it was a very, very fine, very brave article, by the mm. way, just, just to add about that. I mean, we all have our opinions about Peter Hitchens, but, you know, on, on these issues, he's been, he's been heroic, in my opinion. Anyway, mm. let's talk about the escalation and the war. I mean, one of the things that has really struck me about all of this is that the Russians have been expecting this. I mean, they built they built all those huge fortifications um, in um, you know northern Donbass in Zaporozhye region. Apparently, they're building more in Kherson region. Tank traps, fortified lines, minefields. We had comments by Putin just before Christmas about how the West still has lots of tanks, but it's its own tanks. You know, they're getting a tip off from people that you know the, or, or maybe they worked it out, maybe they deduced it that you know these these Western tanks were coming, and when you see them putting. Um, anti-aircraft weapons on their buildings, you can see that they're preparing for the fact that there will be missile attacks on Russian cities, which of course the Ukrainians have threatened. So, I mean, the, the, the Russians have been expecting this and are preparing for it. I mean, is that your impression? Absolutely. One Now, you don't know how much is coincidence, how much of what but anecdotally i will say every trip i went to donbass and that's been at least three now maybe even four i've lost count uh, i was you obviously you see lots of military equipment lots of military trucks but even kamazes just civilian kamazes you'd see them loaded with these like pieces of toblerone <laughs> that's what you kind of describe them these triangles they are steel capped on the corners and they are these uh, tank obstacles, tank traps. They're just cast uh, concrete, usually with a loop at the top for the crane to load them on. And these are loaded actually sometimes quite haphazardly, it appears, where they're literally just bundled into the, these. It may be a Kamaz. It may even be a longer vehicle. It may be a military truck. It didn't seem to matter. Uh, and they were sometimes even traveling a bit lopsided. They were loaded seemingly in that hurried fashion all of them streaming down to the Donbass region. And then, uh, particularly around Donetsk, but not just there, uh, even from Donetsk to Mariupol, I noticed these white, because they're uh, concrete, obviously they look quite gray white. They really stand out, especially in the sunlight, just lines of these triangles, uh, usually in double rows, just streaming out across the fields in the countryside. And the supply of them just seems never ending. It wasn't like there was a, a particular time frame where I could say, oh, maybe a Ukrainian off offensive was anticipated. No, the same level of supply continued then and does appear to still be continuing. Whether that's linked to now these events and the announcement of more tanks coming in, I don't know. But these measures mm. have been taken. Whether it was Surovikin's policy of these incremental... Uh, defense lines being drawn, grinding down and through. Maybe I may be yeah. joining two dots that shouldn't be existed on there. But that, because, yeah, to reach your point. Because because it's I mean, what is remarkable about all of that is because of course Ukraine has tried tank offensives, uh, uh, you know, at various times of the war. They've not been successful. So why suddenly, in the late autumn? 
But before these Western announcements, did the Russians say to themselves, well, we've got to start building these anti-tank lines, these, these That's what struck me. lines? I mean, it, it, it was very strange. And uh, uh, it, it's almost as if they expected this. And when you see them putting air defense systems on their buildings, well, it's almost again as if the Russians are expecting that there will be attempted missile strikes on Russian cities. And Ukraine doesn't have the technology to do that. I mean, they can convert apparently. a few old drones. Well, they can convert a few old drones, but even that apparently they can only do, or so I'm told, I'm not an expert on these things, as I often say, I'm not an industrial person. They can, Well, not, not a technical person. Then they can only do this with some input from the west i mean you need apparently to change the engine in some ways you need completely different uh, uh you know guidance systems if you're going to convert these drones into cruise missiles and yet it's been happening and but these are crude systems clearly this is being prepared for something a lot more sophisticated so the russians are taking steps to anticipate this my well, theory so being, seems... as like we see with the or saw with the attack on Engels Airfield, that as mm. you both of you commented at the time, it did seem like maybe someone or some authority was taken on the back foot a little bit. Maybe it was yeah. a bit of a surprise, yeah. and there was some negative blowback politically and uh, in the opinions of people regarding that. So that therefore makes me think whether now this proactive kind of stance is to prevent such surprises in the future but then as you say you don't know how much is just uh, a cautious preventative measure or no we have enough intelligence to justify this investment of resources and time into this bit what i get maybe it's just me being a bit too cynical now but when zelensky uh, oh sorry no schultz said something about oh we won't be supplying fighter jets and infantry or troops on the ground in kind of to justify sending the leopards we're sending those but don't worry we're not sending these i don't yeah. trust you schultz because no. of the track record so if anything you're kind of giving me a forewarning of what you are going to provide with the netherlands yes. promising f-16s and then we've had yeah. uh, uh maybe it was zelensky who was saying oh f-16s are all right for now but we're going to need bigger and better and faster. So what, F-22, F-35s, whatever. So, yeah, I can see the I can see the next sort of levels that the escalator is going on. I just don't fully comprehend where the West foresees the top of the escalator being no. and how no. they foresee that it doesn't end in a nuclear winter, uh, as Medvedev yep. has very rightly said. My anticipation is for tomorrow. I do wonder how this announcement will factor into Maria Zaharova's upcoming press conference, which is to do with a briefing on Russia's foreign policy moving forward. Absolutely. The, I, I have to, we, we're going to come to this now because, I mean, this seems to me, I don't know whether you've seen it, but there's been an article in Politico. There was another article in the Financial Times about F-16 deliveries. And, uh, I mean, it, it's clearly now, something that's in discussion again all the usual people coming up throwing up their hands in horror said we can't possibly do this thing this would be a terrible thing it would be it would be it would be horribly escalatory it would be very dangerous it wouldn't help ukraine you say all these same voices they're saying all of these things and these same people who say these things then 
come along and do it. And you're quite right. It won't help Ukraine. I mean, you know, we've already seen, or so it seems to be, you know, the fact that air defenses, modern air defenses, make the performance of aircraft, fighter jets, bomber jets, it complicates them. Even the Russians have had problems with Ukraine's air defenses. In fact, the Russians have had problems with Ukraine's air defenses. How are F-16s going to deal with the far more sophisticated air defense system that Russia has? They're not going to be able to, but Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that the tanks won't work. I was reading a long article in the Daily Telegraph explaining all the major problems there's going to be with these tanks, but they supply them. So they're going to move on. We're going to have the missiles, long-range missiles. Then we're going to have the fighter jets. And then what? Where does it go? Do they have a plan? Mm. I don't think they have a plan. What happens, and this is the big story. I mean, what will people in Moscow feel if fighter jets do start to be supplied by NATO? Will this confirm me? Will it make people scared? Will they say, well, we must stop, we must end? Or will they say we really are under attack? That the West is really at war with us? Now, I wouldn't expect an F-16 to penetrate as far as Moscow, but I do, As again, I'm purely speculating, and some of this I'm just thinking as i say it but you know now with these panzer mounted on top of buildings in moscow perhaps that is preventative in the sense of if these f-16s are delivered if that fear is experienced by the people well we have the reassurance that the kremlin has already taken measures to protect specifically moscow in this case with um, measures additional measures for it uh it would again again it would be just another free gift to President Putin to cement his position, to confirm his past speeches, his previous warnings about how uh, deceitful the West is. We, or, this is already a case, not a case of deceit so much as just another uh, confirmation that the West cannot be trusted in its words. And therefore, how do you do business? How do you engage in diplomacy with people who cannot be trusted? A huge point made by Sergei Lavrov in uh, his recent press conference as well. And again, now, his words about Napoleon galvanizing Europe and attempting to throw it against Russia, against the little mustachioed man and so on. Again, this was Schultz now seemingly justifying Lavrov's remarks, which you know, drew condemnation from certain religious group in in europe but is now seemingly playing out and uh, being right now we've already had the forewarning from uh the washington post i think it was that the the us warms to the idea of sending these long-range missiles specifically to hit crimea and it's funny how oh crimea is okay <laughs> because of the past and how russia uh, gained it. Oh, but that's justified to hit Crimea. But sorry, it is Russian territory and, and very little that they've been able to do can change that. Uh, and that is mm. the fact on the ground. So now again, there's a, there's going to be, well, it hasn't happened yet that we know of, but potentially another U-turn by the US where they gave assurances mm. that no, we'd limit this. And then that, that red mm. line, if you want to call it one, is passed. Uh, I It's a, just a complete downward spiral. And I really... As, as we've just said, I really don't see where it ends. Does it end when there's, does it end or does it begin when NATO boots, Polish boots potentially 
are marching in. They already are as mercenaries and they're already taking horrendous losses. Uh, but is this, we've had Navy SEALs allegedly go AWOL and then turn up or you know, get become deceased in Bakhmut. People now questioning mm. how many others have gone AWOL or deserted mm. that will end up mm. eating a demise. Mm. Um, ha have people in Russia noticed or discussed or has it been talked about Annalena Baerbock's really very remarkable speech in Germany about, you know, how Europe is at war with Russia? I mean, is, are people talking about this? And by the way, I should say, I, I don't think she meant to say it in quite the way she did. I think Baerbock is somebody who certainly should not be a foreign minister or diplomat. I mean, she has a conception of diplomacy is one I can, I find impossible to comprehend. But I don't think, I think she's just, you know, talking off the top of her head and saying all the kind of nonsense that you've come to use. Uh, you know, expect from her. But nonetheless, she did say it. It does reflect her outlook, if you like, when she talks in that way. Has that been picked up in Russia? Uh, I can't say at this early point. Uh, I haven't actually mm. conversed with too many natives on that topic yet. I've been too busy working and going backwards and forwards in the city. But I, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if the reaction is more that this is just merely confirmation of what we already knew what Lavrov, Putin, Medvedev had already said, as Zakharov had uh, noted about the hybrid war. I think this, is, this was mentioned specifically by Lavrov about how Europe is already engaged in a hybrid war against Russia. So, yeah, that stupid sort of clown statement from Baerbock, which, as you say, her sort of bizarre foreign policy is consistent with many of the, the Western representatives where it is almost bizarre and uh, you think to yourself you should not have said mm. that out loud well indeed but of course she's not the only person saying this is no. this is from the guardian today and it's from martin kettle who is one of its uh, most prominent commentators the guard he's been he's been writing for the guardian for years and it's sending tanks to ukraine makes one thing clear this is now a western war against russia that's the title of Martin Kettle's article in The Guardian. This is now a Western war against Russia. I mean, if most Russians aren't reading that, the Kremlin, the Kremlin and the foreign ministry certainly are. And the editor approved that. <laughs> Oh, well, the editor approved that. The editor probably wrote the title. <laughs> I have to be honest. Yeah, but, well, I mean, you? You know, so this but, is, I mean, you know. You know, that's where it sort of indicates that, well, okay, yeah. This is what we're going to put out there. This is what we're going to put into the public minds. And as oh. you rightly say, it's not just the Western minds either. It'll be no doubt if I now go through Russian media now, I will probably find an article referencing that one. Guardian says West is at war with Russia. Ria mm. Novosti. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, can can I just say, I, mean, I, I don't know whether you saw it with somebody. I, I, I don't want to anticipate too much when Alex goes through questions, but there was one which I have to bring up, which is, of course, uh, somebody asked about Colonel McGregor's point that there's 20,000 US troops in Poland, 100,000 Polish troops ready. I mean, do people in Russia, um, you know, sense that there might be some kind of Western boots on the ground in Ukraine? How would they react to that? I think very similar to these tanks in the sense of it just brings back bad memories and would act as a solidifying, unifying uh, force mm. and rallying call. Uh, if anything, it would also uh, assist with the 
denunciation of the fifth column, the, this portion of mm. society, they will be shown up for, hey, you know, you left your country in the hour of need. Uh, so if they aren't ostracized, then they may even come flood back going, hang on a minute, we were wrong. Yeah, my, my motherland really is in mm. jeopardy and danger here. And the treatment I've had in the West has not been particularly good. Mm. So mm. I, I really don't see how any of the chess moves that the West may have lined up uh, anyway help them in, in any shape or form. Mm. What about these rumours? And there, I've only seen them in the West, but you do find some people on the very, hard, you know, the, the, you know, people like Boris Rogin. I know, I'm sure you know who Boris Rogin is. Colonel Gassad, people like that. They're talking about the fact that there is going to be another mobilisation. Are you hearing any rumours or reports about that in Russia? Uh, I have, uh, in the sense, uh, as I've reported, I heard way back in November that in the later half of January there would be a uh, we will call it an additional wave of mobilization because mm. Peskov addressed this. He's addressed it on numerous occasions, but just the other day, as I reported, uh, he was alluding to the fact that that whilst the mobilization part has, according to Shoigu, been completed to the figure of, we're told, 300,000, there was a, a kind of a... Um, he said, oh, but it still remains in force in other forms to allow the military to perform their duties and tasks as assigned to them by the presidential decree. So it was kind of a reminder that the presidential decree is in force, but the mobilization has reached the 300,000 that Shoigu had laid out. Then the question remains of what's in this secret seventh paragraph. Uh, and when asked about it, Peskov once again mentioned Shoigu and 300,000. So the guess is amongst media and society that the seventh paragraph contains some form or amendment that permits, should need arises, this uh, figure to be expanded upon, possibly to 500,000, mm. pull whatever figure you'd like uh, that you deem necessary. Mm. Um, so there is, there is that question. There is, of course, that concern uh, that it may well happen. Um, but uh, how present and real that is, I don't, I don't know. My wife kind of gives me little anecdotes of certain jobs that are in demand. Uh, uh, people, of course, or mothers, actually, mm. who wish to protect their sons um, might try and get them jobs in certain factories that are protected. I haven't heard an uptick in that sort of request or anything like that. So I whilst it may be in the back of the mind i don't think it's at the forefront at this point but mm. i could see it happening if if the ratchet keeps going up mm, my very last question if if the west continues along its present course provides more of these german tanks and other tanks sends its own troops in sends fighter jets sends um, um, missiles launches missile strikes on Russian cities. I'm going to guess now it's going to make it much easier to call up another half a million troops if that's Easily, what you yeah. want to do. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And uh, I, I, you'd, I think as we, all, all of us commented at the time, this first uh, decree that went out in around September time exposed many weaknesses, many breakdowns in the mm. structures and the systems. And it was acknowledged by Putin that such um, mm. issues existed and that mm. through presidential subsequent decrees they would be if not fixed then efforts made to remedy them 
If you then find you need to call that 500,000 additional to the 300,000, well, that machine will be far better oiled. And if we've had these provocations of tanks, fighter jets, missiles, and even, I hope not, but troops, I think you'll have far more men even volunteering in this stage, uh, much less, you know, less protests about being mobilized. So again, I don't yeah. see how that helps the West whatsoever. They should be yeah. really yeah. noting that. And the exercises by the Admiral uh, Gorshkov with the Zircon missiles, that, that was publicized yesterday. And I saw that as a shot across the bows of the West. So you can play with your mm. uh, Leopard 2A4 tanks from Spain that are in a pitiful state, but our, our surface vessel that we're going to tell you about and mm. probably the numerous submarines that we won't tell you about are training and are well drilled in how to use hypersonic missiles that can target both surface and underwater targets as well so watch your step I, that's how i took that uh, media report mike thank you very much for answering my my various questions i think i get to welcome, hand over pleasure. to alex now I, uh, I i know that there's lots of questions and alex will no doubt have you uh, things he wants to discuss himself. Yeah, we got a lot of questions. On uh, Baerbach, I just want to make a comment and say that uh, she is just repeating what she's hearing from everybody else. Mm. So I think mm. it gives you a, a glimpse into what what all of the people above Baerbach are, are saying. And she's just repeating it out loud because mm. she's, she's completely uh, unqualified to be a foreign minister. So she's just she's just repeating what her what her bosses are saying. So um, mm. as with Schultz as well, Schultz is also mm. kind of kind of hinting at the fact that fighter jets mm. and troops will be uh, heading to to Ukraine. When he says they're not, it means mm -hmm. it means they are. Exactly my opinion. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So let's uh, take some questions for Mike, and um, let's start with let's start with locals. Hello, gentlemen. I.O. Gray. This is coming from GEG. Um, I saw your video shared by Aussie Kozak about the biolabs. I hope this will be discussed. And thank you for your work at Donbass. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I guess that also lends into the other aspect of certainly Russia's justification because the Ministry of Defense did um, drop their briefing. Mm. Uh, I heard many corroborating reports from these soldiers and military present there. I can only take their word for many of the things when they're describing historical events that took place at this site. Um, you know, the purpose of that video was to provide this site where, as alleged, the the things that were um, visible and available to see. Uh, but it has to be just taken for what it is at face value, because again, there's no, we can't. We can't prove that certain tests or whatever were, were taking place. But yeah, very grateful to Aussie Cossack for signal boosting that uh, and getting the information out there uh, because I know it is difficult for people in the West to find. Let's see. GEG says escalation escalator plus no reverse gear equals nuclear options. Hmm. Ronald B says. Is public verbal opposition to the special military operation allowed in Russia, not just critiques of tactics, but opposition to the operation itself? Ah, now that's to what, yeah, to what degree? So there are limitations in law uh, against, uh, I'm going to say many, if not all the forms 
media forms, even bloggers, as they call them. It doesn't matter if it's a vlogger or YouTuber, they kind of label people like myself under the blogger umbrella. So there are, uh, there are statutory sort of limits, limitations as to what can be, can be said and accepted publicly. But in the sense of discourse, uh, very free, you're very free to de debate and um, have a, an opposing opinion to it. The interesting article that I read yesterday was from Yevgeny Prigozhin, particularly in regards to um, nasty comments made about convicts who have accepted the deal with Wagner, lost their lives, and then had their memory sort of besmirched by online entities and outlets. And he'd like them, he'd like those Wagner fighters included in the protections given to the regular Russian armed forces and participants of the special military operation. And I thought that was an interesting topic for people to discuss. And people seem to agree that if a convict loses his life in such a, an endeavor, he is deemed to have repaid his debt to society in that regard. So there are some other nuances in this debate, but it's nowhere near as authoritarian as some people may think. But also, mm. in fairness, it has to be understood. And Alexander, you're probably a better interpreter of this, but the language used, and keeping in mind that the language I display is through translation, does seem very harsh and very restrictive, but uh, it's not actually quite as overbearing as, as it um, mm. really outlines. I think that's entirely correct. I think the Russians always are. Russian laws, there's a famous expression from the 19th century attributed to a Russian poet that Russian laws would be intolerable if they were ever strictly enforced, but they never are. <laughs> it's actually quite true, yeah. I agree. Um, let's see. From Rumble, Android says, it's a shame what's happening to the ethnic Hungarians in Transcarpathia. Mm. it's true yeah very true um from thought crimes do the people in donetsk city and the dpr understand the majority of the people in the usa are against their government's support of and supplying weapons to ukraine i'm not i'm not sure that they are uh the main uh, that was the message that i kind of gave them was actually there's more and more westerners who understand your plight are educated on the background and that number grows daily. But the main feedback from them was um, was apathy, uh, that the Western peoples in general are too brainwashed, uh, and it's sometimes not even worth trying to appeal to them because it will have no effect, which I, I felt was a tragic thing, but completely understandable that they would be at this conclusion at this point in time after so much has happened mm. to them because of the West governments. Right. KJK Speaks says, thank you. Ronald B says, what will be the red line for Russia to attack deparkation points in NATO countries rather than waiting for the materials to reach Ukraine territory? It's a good question. Lavrov, uh, Lavrov said that, or it has been repeated, this stress that these cargoes will be legitimate targets. And as I've commented, well, there's words and then there's actions. I I do wonder if that border in the West, whether that will be targeted, that rail line, these methods, I, I really don't know. But it's not it's less so much about the red line for Russia, I think. It would be how the West would then take such an action, spin it and use it to keep ramping up the 
the escalation escalator, as Alexander has coined it. I could see that being mm. used as fuel for the fire. We absolutely must send fighter jets to protect the supply routes, providing the tanks that we've promised because Russia keeps mm. obliterating them. There we go. There's our justification. Russia must be stopped at all costs. So the fighter jets go in. That's an obvious mm. kind of ruse I can see. Sparky says, seems like the West is using Poland to get ready for a sort of combination D-Day and Bay of Pigs to retake Ukraine. I could, I could potentially see that. Uh, would you guys mind elaborating on the uh, theory that was put in the comments of my video from yesterday, where you felt that the tanks were used for a contingency force in Poland? Uh, I only mm. got sort of snippets of this idea that maybe these leopards were to be used mm. elsewhere and other yeah. tanks were to go to Ukraine. I was intrigued by what this. What we basically were saying, and I mean, I, I, is that the sending of these tanks to Ukraine is so completely illogical that there are so many insurmountable obstacles towards their effect, against working against their effective use, that their number is wildly inadequate, that the logistical and maintenance challenges are so in, enormous that, and the fact and that this fact has been explained to the Western leaders who have been making this decision, that it makes no sense at all for those Western leaders to make that decision in the way that they did. And we did wonder whether perhaps the intention was, well, actually, these tanks are not going immediately to Ukraine. They're going first to Poland. The Poles seem to be mobilizing a lot. If the intention is, the actual plan is to send troops into Western Ukraine, well, you now are putting, you're putting machines, tanks, other vehicles in place, in position, in Poland, and that they're being made ready for a possible intervention in Ukraine, and that the Poles who have experience using Leopard 2 tanks, the Ukrainians don't, but the Poles do, they've, they're now going to have 88 of these things that they can take with them into Western Ukraine. I want to stress this was not a uh, prophecy. We weren't saying this is what was going to happen. It was, you know, a discussion that the two of us had with each other. So that, that was what we were saying. And I think it's something, I mean, Brian Boletic touched on it in his latest video as well, his latest programme on the new Atlas. It's certainly something we should all keep in mind because this build-up in Poland is indeed taking place. And, you know, why is it happening? And I'm going to say something else, by the way. If it happens, and, you know, Olaf Scholz is providing the tanks that Poland is going to use to capture Western Ukraine, that is not going to go down well in Germany at all. I mean, the Germans will not be happy. I mean, I'm not talking about you know, the German political class, but much of the German population will be very, very incensed if that happens. I mean, they might not be very happy. They're, probably, they're not happy about the fact that these tanks are being sent to Ukraine, but they will be absolutely furious if they're used by Poland for an entirely different purpose and that particular purpose above all. I can see that. Something that jumped out at me at the article, uh, an article on this topic I read yesterday. Uh, now, logistically speaking, it's very obvious that these tanks will go through Poland. But it was saying specifically regarding these Leopard 2A4s from Spain, mm. it stressed mm. how they would be going to Poland. 
And I just, mm. I found that odd that it was stressed uh, and almost highlighted in there. Again, it might be a, a dot that you're connecting each way, but I can, I can see the yes. merits of this line of thinking that you've just outlined. Uh, and yeah. yeah, it would kind of make some sense on it. Hmm. I mean, Poland is looking to get uh, money from all of this as well. From, oh, yeah. from the EU. So they're looking to cash in on this. But uh, I, I believe that that the whole buildup in Poland is, is a viable fallback option for a lot of the, the, the neocons who are planning and plotting and strategizing. This is the way they think. They're probably thinking if things go really, really bad, mm then we have these three, 400,000 uh, troops in Poland with all of this equipment. And perhaps we can do something along the lines of what we did in Syria, which is an argument that, uh, that Barry and Berletic also makes. And it's something we should keep an, keep an eye mm -hmm. out for because yeah. you could see something along the lines of what the U.S. did in Syria try to repeat itself in, uh, in Ukraine. It's, it's very possible. So uh, let's take a question from GEG, who says perhaps this is a better question from, for Brian at the New Atlas, but am I correct in believing that there is no way for Ukraine to carry out its threat to strike Moscow without American missiles? I think that's true. I mean, I, I'm going to try and answer that. Um, I think that is true. I think that realistically, I mean, they're not going to be able to carry out an effective strike on Moscow or even an ineffective strike on Moscow without some degree of American uh, or, or at least Western help. So I, I, I think that the fact that the Russians are hardening their defences in and around Moscow shows what they think that the Americans are up to. Yeah, yeah that's the key point. When we say Ukraine does a strike, uh, it's, it's all no. convoluted, isn't no. it? It's the US through Ukraine because yeah. proxy. Mm. Look, there, there's no doubt that they want to hit Crimea. I mean, mm. Moscow, okay, but they're focused on mm. hitting Crimea. They believe that if they can hit Crimea hard enough or consistently enough, then that could lead to some sort of chain reaction, which would lead to some sort of instability in the uh, yes. in the Putin government. Mm. Mm. That's, that's As the I see it, the symbolic, it. if they did manage to have any form of strike on Moscow, of course, in their minds, it would be a symbolic victory that would hopefully shape the people's confidence in Putin, that nothing's going right and everything's terrible, he needs to be got rid of. Uh, and as we've seen in the past, you'd likely find that it would actually, again, further solidify the Russian uh, population, where they'd be like, oh, wow, we are actually under attack. Gosh, it's actually coming to Moscow, so we actually need to redouble our efforts. Yeah, absolutely. Mark wants to know, Mike, are you surprised that you have not been sanctioned by the UK government? <laughs> I saw I had last night. Uh, my bank completely froze my account, uh, but it turned out because I bought crypto <laughs> to transfer it. <laughs> and they, they had many, many, many questions about my recent investments in crypto and i was very shady in my or vague in my responses uh, for them i uh, i actually am a little bit uh, i'm i'm still jealous of graham phillips uh, uh, for his recognition of his work uh, but in all seriousness uh, yeah I've, i do find that a very troubling and worrisome uh, precedent that's been set by the uk government and i very much hope it's lifted and 
justice prevails, of course, uh, certainly for mm. Graham's, Graham's uh, benefit in case. Um, I am aware, I think I iterated yesterday and in one of my, I think it was in the stream as opposed to a video where I have, I have been notified that I'm a person of interest should I return to the UK. And even the FBI were questioning someone who I met in Moscow uh, upon their return about what interaction they had with me and other details that they could find. And I thought that was a bit strange. Uh, the secondhand information, of course, uh, all mm. anecdotes. Uh, yeah, it's a bit perturbing, really. It's like, really, you're just a YouTuber. But mm. that, such is the way of the world, alas. Yeah, I, I would just quickly say about all of this and also about the Graham Phillips affair, which is that, it, to me, as far as I'm concerned, it violates the fundamental legal principle that there is no pun penalty without law <laughs> so i mean unless somebody is you know found guilty of something in a court of law the state cannot punish that person and in fact i mean that goes all the way back to magna carta by the way it's yep. actually there and it's one provision mm -hmm. of magna carta which is still in force it's mm -hmm. never been repealed or, or superseded by any other law and um you know sanctioning somebody is does exactly that it punishes people without law and without any kind of due process of law so i mm -hmm. would say this is completely unlawful and i'm really very very disturbed that we're mm. doing it to our own citizens in our own country mm. euro gabor says what goes up must come down when will the escalator reach the top of the cliff or instead of jumping ship will they jump to the next escalator can a Ukraine collapse take Taiwan off their agenda? I wish we. Question. I wish I could answer that question, Yara mm -hmm. uh, uh, But all I would say, all I will say is this: I still believe that we're going to come through this somehow. I, I, I mean, we we we've been in these kind of situations before, where we go all the way up to the edge, and then, of course, suddenly the penny drops. With the military in my experience, are already extremely unhappy and very uneasy about the situation. We've had two German generals, three German generals coming out, uh, two retired, or three retired, but they're all you know, well-connected people. They're all saying this is, this is a bad idea. We've had Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling in the United States talking in much similar way. And he's, you know, he's not a dissident officer like you could perhaps add a stretch, say some of these other people that we've been talking about, Scott Ritter, uh, Daniel Davis, Douglas McGregor. I don't think there are any sort of dissidents, but I can, I can imagine some people might say that. Hurtley, you cannot say that about. So I think the military is unhappy in the West. And I think if we get into a situation we're, in, we're involved in some kind of shooting war with the Russians. How, whatever form it takes, but a direct shooting war with the Russians. I think this is the one thing that is going to shake the Western public. And I think they, they do not want to go there. They do not want to find themselves in what Biden himself at the very start of this said would be nuclear, World War Three. So I think at that point, this, this thing will stop. But there is the but. I don't know. And the problem with an escalator is that it's very, very difficult to get off it until you get, you get to the top. What is at the top is another matter. One person who may have an idea is, of course, President Putin. And yesterday I saw a clip where he seemed to hint 
at this. And he, his translation of his words were along the lines of, one way or the other, we shall see Europe regain its sovereignty. Yeah. He was talking in relation to events. So I do wonder if he is alluding to perhaps the outcome being not as the West expects with, you know, the complete dis like, uh, disembowelment of Russia and breaking it up into little satellite pieces, mm. but rather um, uh, a European, uh, what would we call it, kind of a mutiny against the West, mm. the US masters. Maybe, maybe that's what he foresees. Maybe that's what's foreseen to be the end of this, where it then de-escalates. Uh, as Europe says, we had it, we're out, we're not doing what you say, Newland. Ricardo Alfonso says, each war is an isolated case, has its own logic, requires understanding of its own logic and unique character. Mm. Well said. Pauli says that Duran is very, very popular in the Netherlands. Mm. Nice to know, actually. And mm. that, that, that would be, especially given how heavy the mood is in the Netherlands, as I understand it. Place, of course, I know very well. I used to travel to the Netherlands regularly at one time. And, um, and um, well, um, you know, I'm a bit surprised that the Netherlands has taken this very hardline position that it has done over the last 10 years or so, even before the incident involving that aircraft in 2014, which I don't mm. want to name, by the way. You all know what I'm referring to. But mm. um, I'm surprised that they've took it to take it to. I mean, I remember, for example, how in the 70s, the Netherlands was very people in the Netherlands were very opposed to the deployment of cruise missiles there. So you know, I wonder what changed. From Sanjeeva, good day, Mike. How is it in Russia? How is the general mood? My wife is Russian. We live in Australia, and she doesn't tell me anything. So I ah, ask you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In general, um, life is normal. Uh, yeah, pretty good. Mm. Uh, yeah, nothing really out of untoward or out of the, out of the ordinary. Um, Russians are quite serious people anyway. Uh, they know how to have fun, don't, don't get me wrong. But I know that Americans uh, sometimes find the Russian people quite um, closed mm. and reserved. So people see that as a negative thing, uh, like, oh, they're in a bad mood. That's not the case. They're just people who are different, no. different temperaments. Private R says, good day, guys. When do you think a witch hunt will start for Russian nationals and generally Russian-speaking people living in the West, 21st century McCarthyism. Thank you. It started already. I mean, we're already there. I mean, I, I mean to, be, to be very clear, I mean, it hasn't got completely out of control. And if anything in London, I'd say it slightly receded. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, I mean, you did not hear Russians, Russians spoken in London. I mean, people were just very careful they were russians and you know we have a large russian community not to speak in russian in public at mm. least that was my impression but now i hear a lot more russian voices again yeah. people talk russian again so uh, it has receded and not everybody in britain by any stretch of the imagination is you know signed up to this thing we are and have always been and remain in many ways a very tolerant country and i think that is still the case but i mean you know, you still get articles published, you know, saying we mustn't have performances of Tchaikovsky and, uh, uh, you know, attempts to uh, smoke out Russians. And there was an absolutely terrible speech by the Spanish prime minister, Mr. Sanchez, 
which really profoundly shocked me. But yeah, everyone wants the link to that speech, uh, Alexander. Oh, sorry, sorry, I read it in the Financial Times. It was behind a paywall, yes. but I will try and find it. Um, I'll try and find it and send it and circulate it. But I mean, it's an awful speech in which he talks about, you know, uprooting all of Putin's noxious uh, weeds and all of this sort of thing. So, you know, you do have some, you know, really disturbing things being said and happening. But as I said, I... I whether it will get worse or whether it will get better, I don't know. But I think at public popular level in London, uh, maybe it's ebbed a little. But certainly if so, that's not because the media is causing it to ebb. And so certainly not because the political class is causing it to ebb. There is as relentless as ever. Most recently, Djokovic's game. Uh, there were displays of Russian flags uh, from the family yeah. and... All this and there was yeah. a crackdown, I think, by the uh, authorities there yeah. uh, because all of this yeah. was banned, as farcical as that is. But that seems to be the case in Australia that I was reading yesterday. Yeah. Commando Crossfire has two questions for you, Mike. Mike, I heard Russia was taking kids out from the Donbass to summer winter camps and vacations in Russia. Is this the case? Are you able to speak to this? And the second question is, Mike, have you noticed any tension between yeah, the locals have. in Donbass? and all the workers or troops brought in from across Russia, any culture class clashes or such? Uh, first question, yes, I can confirm that according to the mayor of Mariupol, they had this exchange program where students were sent to St. Petersburg, the universities and campuses. They also had a sort of like a tribute event of the Scarlet Sales or the Red Sales event uh, where they had this exchange of uh, children uh, from Mariupol and St. Petersburg and vice versa. So yes, there there are programs where those those children would spend a summer uh, over in Russia, paid for by the Russian Federation. Uh, with regards to tensions, no, um, not cultural uh, in the sense Russia is a melting pot of numerous races, cultures, traditions, as Putin often alludes to in his speeches. So you'll see people of uh, different ethnic backgrounds there the the one thing that i would say that uh, is understandable culturally speaking is just the rampant alcoholism as you'd expect to see on a, a frontline hmm. city all right uh Dithies, Dithies, thank you for that super chat alison blunderland says haven't been around for a while but i hope you lads have had a merry christmas and a happy new year here's a belated xmas christmas Prezi donation long overdue. Enjoy. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. Alison Blunderland, thank you to all our moderators as well, including Alison Blunderland for the job that you are doing. Danielle wants to know, Mike, would you not have been allowed into the Australian Open with that T-shirt? In this crazy world, having a T-shirt with a Z or a Russian flag is deemed offensive. Go Djokovic. <laughs> yeah, Danielle, okay, I also agree with go, go uh, Djokovic. I am pulling for Djokovic as well. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I so can say for a fact. I can. I just yeah. say for a fact. There's a lot of places in London where uh, it might not be a good idea to try to go in with mm -hmm. that T-shirt. And I'm not talking about, you know, places like you know the Wimbledon. I'm sure you would no. go to Wimbledon with something like that at the no. moment. I, I bought this cheap, uh, cheap costume, winter costume, really well insulated, and it came. I had to buy it because the jacket had the Russia and the Russian flag on it. 
And now every video I get, people ask you, where did you get the jacket from? But specifically, a couple of comments have come from London. They're like, I want to buy that jacket just so I can wear it down the street. Now, I'm guessing that these individuals are pretty well-built <laughs> men who aren't afraid of some, uh, some stern looks. Uh, but yeah, apparently that's the so Jeva, in London. So Jeva wants to know, Mike, when I was in Russia in 2018, I found Russians had a reverence for everything Western, a bit of an inferiority complex. Has it changed now? Do they have more self-esteem? Yes, encouragingly so. Yeah, I've commented on that. When I first arrived in, in just 2018 at the FIFA World Cup, there was this adulation uh, for certainly my British passport. When I bought a SIM card, there was a, like, oh, mm. And that's, that's, I'm glad to see that that's subsided. Not gone. Mm. There is still this uh, affection, fondness uh, for, for the West. For, you know, let's think of like the Hollywood idea of what the West is and um, mm. some of the things there. But yeah, it has subsided. And I'm glad to see that Russians are now starting to value and appreciate the society that has been built since the fall of the Soviet Union. Many of them remember it. And I don't think they fully appreciated the leaps and bounds uh, that the country itself has taken since those painful days. And in many ways has overtaken places like the UK, like healthcare mm. and all sorts of other, other mm. areas as well that they just assume are better. So maybe the US does have the finest healthcare system in the world, but they don't appreciate the cost that that comes at or, or comes mm. with. Uh, that unfortunately Americans uh, have to suffer the burden of. Graugach1001, thank you for that awesome super chat. Uh, Jura Maledit says, these are kicks of a dying horse and surely Europe will regain independence. Mm. I think so. I think that's entirely right. I think that was eventually what's going to happen. That's what Putin himself is saying. But... You know, we live in the moment, and at the moment, it doesn't seem to have much independence. I think, I think you're right, but you know, we've still got a way to go, and of course, it's a twisted and thorny road before we get there. Yeah. I think Germany again would be pivotal because if if Schultz were to have a backbone and a stance, yeah. and if Germany were to have said from the beginning, we're not playing this game, no way. Uh, you know, our economy can't tolerate it, then I don't think the other countries would have been quite so quick to follow suit with this saber rattling and all this bizarre behavior. But considering that um, you know, Germany has been so easy to command, um, well, they put like that, you know, the nominal token gesture oh, but I don't want to send leopards. Come on, Schultz, send the leopards. Okay, yabul. You have time, Mike, 10, 10 more minutes, 15 more minutes. You have time yeah, sure. to do a few more questions. Yeah. yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. From uh, Arthur, he says, would the Dnieper be the next frontiers line to reach by Russia? Would Poland secure Lviv and Galicia? Oh, yeah, a lot of talk of the Dnieper. Uh, the main recent reports that I've had is about Ukraine actually launching uh, amphibious assaults across the Dnieper. Uh, that seems like a natural barrier. Uh, I really, I'm really not sure on, on this. Mm. Scott, Scott Ritter, among others, has said about how you know, Russia should sweep or has to sweep the whole of Ukraine to complete mm. it. How some of these mobilized forces are occupational forces that will police mm. and um, do this. I, I really can't say, in all truth, mm. not more with any authority. 
I'm going to add my toughness worth to this. I used to think this. I think I used to think that you know that the Dnieper was a viable political and military barrier. I have to say, I don't really think so. I think that unless you could do what John Helmer is talking about and create some kind of demilitarized zone along the Dnieper or you know, create a kind of Berlin Wall time situation, which very unsatisfactory. Unless there's a that kind of political settlement, look at the geography, and I'm talking about the human geography now. All of these big cities that Ukraine has: Zaporozhye, Dnipro, Kremenchuk, Kiev itself. They are strung out along the Dnieper. If the Russians are on the east bank and the Ukrainians are on the west bank. That it doesn't just divide Ukraine in half, it cuts a line right through the the core region, which is Ukraine. I'm not sure that Ukraine would survive, frankly. I can't see how it would. I mean, you'd have Russian guns literally, you know, a kilometer or so away from, you know, the uh, center of the most important Ukrainian cities. So I don't think this is, an unless it was formed part of some political settlement, and then, of course, you'd, you'd have all of these cities, they'd be frontline cities. So I, I, I don't really see this working in quite the way that I once did. Your mention about demilitarized zone reminded me of the IAEA, who very recently repeated calls for a demilitarized zone around the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. And this was just shortly before Russia appeared to make some advances in the Zaporozhye front line. And it just occurred to me, I was like, well, maybe yeah. Russia is creating a demilitarized zone because they're demilitarizing that area, just not in the way that the, the West kind yeah. of expected, yes. I think. Yes. Now, I don't want to move yeah. too quickly, but notice that, that the shelling of that power station seems to have abated over the last few weeks. And mm. one does wonder why. Mm. They've run out of shells. <laughs> and reallocate resources. I've heard, yeah. I, I, I've, heard, I've heard that, actually, that they have run out of shells. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Dr. Liliana Corridor says, Colonel Douglas McGurger says 20,000 U.S. troops in Poland plus 100,000 Poles on the ready to march into Ukraine. Please comment. Well, I, th I think we've talked about this to some extent. I, I'm going to quickly say this. I think if Poland does such a foolish thing, it would be a disaster for Poland. It would also be a disaster for the US. I don't think the US, I don't think the political leaders in the US understand what they would be asking their soldiers to do. I don't think they understand this landscape very well and how fighting operates there. And I don't think they would understand the kind of military that they'd be up against in the Russian military. So I think, I think this would be an a disastrous idea. The Americans, provided we accept, avoid World War Three, which is not certain, would presumably be able to walk away. But Poland, absolute disaster for them. And I hope, I hope they don't do it. Linked to that, um, I, I commented about leopards on trains in Poland. I'm at the point of cynicism where we. By the time we get these announcements, like from the US, that, oh, we'll promise 30 to 50 M1 Abrams, I'm of the opinion these Abrams are already in Poland. Mm. Uh, or, or I see um, evidence or video clips that kind of suggest that whilst the official 
public statement has been, oh, yeah, we'll think about it. Well, they already have and they've already actioned and they've already got many of these things in Poland on the ground. I don't know if that's true, but that's kind of uh, given how little valued the words of the West and all the games that they're playing. I, I do have to wonder if that also answers why we're seeing Russia very quickly take steps, because they know that these pieces of the puzzle or the chessboard have already been moved into position. Ricardo, yeah. Um, I, I, no, I was just thinking uh, that we almost had a, a peace agreement in the end of March, and then Boris ruined it, and here we are talking about F-16s and... Yeah, and Boris oh, back in Kiev yeah. again. And Boris back in yeah. Kiev again. Never bodes well. Uh, no. Ricardo Alfonso says, told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Macbeth, a summary of the speeches of the Western leaders. Absolutely yeah. true. And what the greatest soliloquy in Macbeth, by the way, it's, it's one uttered by him, I think, fairly close to his end. Mm -hmm. yeah. William says, the reason Soros got to Munich next month to declare World War III... Yeah, well, we need to keep an eye on the Munich Security Conference. I mean, this is, mm. by the way, a bad time because in Europe we have this whole succession of conferences. And I, I remember this time last year, they were getting working the, each other up from one conference yep. to another. And now that. we're going to have the Munich Security Conference. And it's going to be really, this is, really This is how scary. it all started. This is how exactly. it all started in February 17th. What was it? February 16th, 17th. Yeah. When they had uh, Aletsky running around Munich saying, I'm going to get yeah. nukes. I'm going to get nukes. And yeah. all of the leaders at that conference from Ursula to, uh, to Baerbach to Kamala Harris, none of them yeah. told Zelensky to shut up. None of them came out with a press statement, statement saying yeah. Ukraine's never going to get nukes. No one said anything. As a matter of fact, no. they encouraged him. They encouraged him and encouraged him. And one week later, look at what we got. Um, from, let's go to Odyssey here. From Rabis Mer, is there a chance Ukraine is partitioned between Russia and the EU border countries? I think we've discussed this. We've discussed this. I mean, yes, it is possible. But, you know, we're not there. We, I mean, Working out the end game here is very difficult. It's a very, very difficult conflict. One of the reasons why we should never have got into this conflict in the first place. We had lots of um, opportunities to get out of it. There was all those off-ramps. Minsk II was one. Um, the agreement that was reached in March last year was another. We've thrown the, burnt all those up. And now we find ourselves in a situation where we're trying to work out an, uh, uh, an, uh, an end game at, at, in, in, at, in the most dangerous crisis I, in my lifetime. I don't know. I can't quite see how, you can, how it's going to work out yet. But, you know, that's one of those. Partition is a possible plan, I suppose. Zariel says, I agree. Thank you for joining us again and making the Durant an even better place for real news with quality content. Thank you, Zariel. Thank you, Zariel. For that. Yeah. Elza says, how many ghosts of Kiev are necessary to fly those F-16s? 
Oh, don't worry. With ghosts, they can produce an infinite number of them. I mean, that's the thing about ghosts. As they aren't real pilots, you can imagine any number if you want and multiply by 10 or 100. Interesting observation there, though. We haven't had many ghosts of Kiev or Snake Islands of late that I recall. Maybe we will in the future, but that's Mm. quite something Mm. I hadn't thought of. Thank you, Elsa, for pointing that Mm. out. Wayne Hall says the escalation will end with Biden's removal, which may be coming very soon. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, Sparky says, seems like the U.S. is forcing NATO to clean out their closets. So they need to go shopping at the U.S. military industrial complex mall. Primary goal. This This is absolutely correct. I will make one observation about this. And it's a point that Helmer has been making to me in private emails, by the way, which is that far from the... MIC in the US doing particularly, especially well, look at their market valuations. Whenever there's an announcement, you know, that their tanks or their missiles have been shipped to Ukraine, their share prices dip. Hmm. So it's curious. It's perhaps a sign that, you know, maybe there's nerves that if it goes wrong, it will actually knock value off the company. I mean, these weapons, not really for war, you see. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. Death to Tyrant says, shout out to the Duran and all my fellow Rockfin family. Thank you for that Rockfin tip as well. And let's do a couple more and we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Where should I go? Let's go to, let's go to YouTube. Let's pull a couple of questions from YouTube. From Sparky, perhaps Russia will sell or donate Galicia to Poland on the condition that it doesn't remain Ukraine and absorbed into Poland. You know, this is that would be a poisoned gift for Poland, if I can say. If you're going to partition Ukraine, if you're going to separate Western Ukraine from the rest of Ukraine, and I can see some logic in that, but I'm not advocating it, but I can see some logic in it. I think it makes more sense to have it as an independent country than to have it absorbed in Poland. I think you're going to complicate horribly the politics of Poland and you're going to create a whole set of new problems replacing the old problems. I mean, Western Ukraine is an independent country, would not be a would have many, many problems in itself, but you could perhaps see a way through to it becoming a functioning place. Part of Poland, I can't really see it. I'll just add to that, and that's just reminding me of something. Uh, there's a consideration in my mind that Russia does have to be careful with the, how it handles Ukraine. Not not obviously primarily, but not just because of those uh, the population that's present in Ukraine. But something you probably won't know in the Western media is certainly lately the immigration centers have been overwhelmed with Ukrainians, uh, people uh, coming primarily, obviously, from the Donbass regions. There is a large Ukrainian population. Many people I know here in St. Petersburg, one of my lawyers was from Donetsk, in fact. Uh, The handyman who works on my house Mm. also has family in Donetsk. Um, So there there is a strong contingent of and a growing population in Belgorod as well. I think there's quite a few Ukrainians there. So how Russia, in whatever form it takes, handles mm. the entity that is known as Ukraine and how that looks like in the future, mm. I think there will be some consideration to not treat it sensitively, um, to you know maybe even rob these people of their 
identity or former country, as you know, maybe some theories would be, I don't foresee being the right move. Uh, I think that will be something that will be on the minds. I, th- I think that's right. I think you're absolutely right about that, yeah. Yozek uh, Luther says, NATO, the U.S. has always had designs on Crimea. Ukraine will have no way of repaying for all the weapons and dollars given, and the U.S. would demand Crimea for itself, means for itself means a, a military base, a U.S. military base. I, I, I mean, this is exactly what the Russians believe, I think. <laughs> yeah. From locals, from... Uh, GEG says, concerning the escalator, right now on the U.S. State Department webpage, the words are, diplomacy is the only responsible way to resolve this crisis. <laughs> so why aren't they engaging in it? Like, seriously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Ricardo Alfonso wants to know, would Mike do a collab, walk and talk video with Sergei Baklikov? He's in St. Petersburg. Ah. Yeah, I, I see him. He's actually all over the place in the sense uh, he's in Moscow some days. Uh, he does some driving stuff around. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly be open to it. It's uh, yeah, about communication and syncing up. The other thing I want to do uh, is on Friday, I won't go on the first day, but they're opening up uh, this display of captured equipment, uh, NATO equipment from the special military operation. So I'd like to do a tour there. And there were a couple of people that I was hoping to to meet there mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I think it would be quite fascinating. Uh, Ratfig and Marmalade says, bingo, I, Earl Grey. I'd go further. Part of Ritter's and the Durant's job is to softball Western military readiness. The site often appears to me as a key part of disinfo campaign for the left-leaning minds. Interesting comment mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we'll do one, one or two more. From Sparky, Munich Security Conference would be a good time for Kamala to look presidential. She had such an impact last year. It's a good point, oh, actually. A, it is a good point. Absolutely. It's a very good point. I mean, you know, put aside the irony of Kamala looking presidential. But, I mean, I could certainly see that. I mean, you know, and she went there last year. They could send her again this year. Biden is in a lot of trouble, in my opinion. And maybe maybe this this is, you know, preparing the launch pad for her. I mean, it's not impossible. Yeah. And the final question will turn to Charles of London. Is the escalation of supply of supplies to Ukraine a golden opportunity for Iran, China, North Korea to profit field test weapons and components on the battlefield through supplying Russia? Of course. <laughs> I mean, I mean that, that, that's unfortunately a reality of any, every one of these wars. Everybody is testing and learning about both their own weapons and the other sides. So we know already that the Russians have obtained some complete HIMARS missiles. They've undoubtedly you know, taken them apart. They're telling their Chinese friends how they work. Um, and that's important because it turns out that the... U.S., one of its major military ideas, you know, confronting China, was to establish bases in various parts of the Pacific island chain with HIMARS missiles to confront the Chinese. So now, you know, the Chinese have some understanding of the underlying technology, and that compromises what the Americans might be trying to do in the Pacific. So you're going to have lots of this going on. It goes on all the time. It goes on in all wars. It happened in Vietnam. It happened in Korea. It's happening in, before that in the Spanish Civil War. It's absolutely part of this war as well. 
I'd say to my observation, the people who have had the most nasty surprises haven't been the Russians. I think it's been no. uh, the NATO forces that have looked on and almost in horror at the effectiveness of these drones. Uh, we can argue about the origins of those. But I was most intrigued by the latest British and defense intelligence update I read, where all it did was slander the T-14 Armata. Yeah. And it just said how its early production runs had problems. Tell me which tank didn't in its yeah. production runs and saying, oh, they're in small numbers and all this. And I thought that was a very odd update about Ukraine where they focused only on Shoigu and a particular machine that it's known isn't in large quantities. The, no. the machine that has Ural Wagenzavod has been working on and provided in greater numbers than before was the T-90M. But that gets very little mention in Western yeah. press, when I saw uh, General Lord, was it Daggett or Dannett? I got it mm. mixed up. He was referencing mm. the T-72, mm. uh, which I thought was an interesting benchmark to, to put mm. on there. The, uh, the other thing I'll note is we've kind of seen the Weldon and his dog sort of on the Western side throw all their various different mm. machines in there. But we, we've, we've seen... Russia, but we haven't, and we have seen this other country, but I can't really say that we've seen any other assistance for Russia. Russia seems to be using no. its technologies and mm. obviously testing new ones, uh, but doesn't mm. seem to be overly stretched in that regard. Whereas we have no. a string of wonder weapons from, <laughs> from the West every week, almost. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a very good point, actually. All right, let's let's end it there. What's happening in Kaliningrad? Not much news, actually. We should keep an eye out for Kaliningrad. Mm. Mm. They the seem to stir that part. Escalation is a two-way two-way street. Mm. So, absolutely. Yeah. We'll end it there. Mike, Io, Gray, thank you very very much for joining us. I will put mm. actually I already have all of your information in the description box thank down you. below. And I will put all of the information for uh, Mike's channel, I Earl Gray, on YouTube, on Rumble. Where else? On Odyssey, Telegram. Yeah. Yep. Is you that everything? Me. Yeah. Uh, right. yeah, I yeah, that's pretty much it. I recently managed to unlock my Twitter account with the help of a viewer in the UK, but I'm not. I'm still not active on there. I don't particularly like the platform, but it is all good right. for news, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm. Elon Musk is, is not going to be happy with that comment. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I will, I will have all that information as a pinned comment as well. Thank you to Alexander Curris, the Oracle of London Thank in you. London. Thank you to our moderators, Valies, Alice in Blunderland, Zariel, Reckless Abandon, GEC, Peter Frawine. Who else? Uh, I think that is everybody. Thank you very, very much to all our great moderators, GEC812. Thank you to everyone that was watching us on the Duran.locals.com. Thank you to everyone that joined us on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and YouTube. Any final words, gentlemen, before we sign off? Or should we sign off? <laughs> I, I just to say, this has been a brilliant program. And just to say thank you, Mike, I.O. Gray, for coming on again. And we look forward very much to you coming on again soon. Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. And yeah, I look forward to the next time. Thank you all. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.